Hey there, horror movie fans. Welcome back to Here's a Nini Horror Movie Podcast, where I won't be coming at you with an axe, but I'll be coming at you with some facts. Mostly opinions. Well, this is my first official episode, and I wanted to take this time to address one of my favorite 21st century horror filmmakers, Eli Roth. Now, of course, I have to name some honorable mentions from Takashi Mike to M. Night Shyamalan to Rob Zombie and Ari Aster. But oh, yes, Eli Roth, one unique filmmaker I feel is quite underrated and still quite an enigma, especially when it, you know, comes to his use of artistic expression that led to his revival of the exploitation cinema that really came about in the 70s. Now, just to be clear, I'm speaking on Eli Roth from a purely filmmaking perspective and nothing more. Although, I do see a lot of myself within Eli, in the sense that he acknowledges how hard it is just being a writer or a director. And for both of us, we enjoy writing our own screenplay or film script and being our own directors and producers and even acting our own work. That is literally what I do and what I will continue to do. I will be countdowning my top three favorite Eli Roth films, not in any particular order, but you know, a quick disclaimer, major spoilers ahead. So let's begin. Now, of course, we have to start with his big horror debut, Cabin Fever, which, you know, was released in 2002, which was sadly remade later in 2016, which is only 14 years later, which really should, there should be like a 50-year time limit on these these type of remakes because it's following behind two other sequels but have no fear we don't talk about trash on the show we just throw it out of our minds and not in the recyclable okay that's where we mess up guys okay now quick note cabin fever falls into the rising subgenre at the time body horror similar to john carpenter's the thing you see the inspiration to this film was told in an interview with Eli Roth where he took a trip to Iceland when he was 19 years old and worked on a farm with horses you know after moving some hay Eli got an itch on his neck and as he continued to scratch bam piece of flesh right in his hand then later went to shave and thought he nicked himself but no 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 bam blood everywhere he was shaving his own skin like a banana it was a crazy ringworm infection thus cabin fever was born life thought guys one day you can be as healthy as can be and the next your face could be eaten off as someone who lives with a skin condition this is one of the few movies that still crawls under my skin today Cabin Fever is about a group of typical college graduates celebrating at an isolated cabin for the weekend. Very lighthearted and carefree atmosphere, you know, sets the tone, but quickly de-escalates when the main character, Paul, played by Ryder Strong, gets bit by this little demented child named Dennis, okay, at the only convenience store around with the sweetest racist shopkeeper. And can't forget our buddy Bert 
who, you know, direly needs a Snickers because he isn't him when he's hungry. The group arrives at the cabin, and while everyone else is busy with their own antics, my buddy Bert goes shooting and shoots himself a hermit. A for effort, Bert. Then we have probably my favorite scene of the film, the campfire scene, that plays on the idea of a movie within a movie. They sit around telling scary stories by the fire. Paul goes on to tell the story of the Bowling Alley Massacre, which many argue could be a cheap slasher film itself. Then my boy Eli comes out with the big guns and makes a cameo as a smiling guy who gets decapitated and a bowling ball I do not want to roll. But wait, guys. It gets better, okay? Eli then interrupts his own story. Another cameo named Grim, a skateboarding stoner who has a dog named Dr. Mambo. Anyway, back to the cabin. The hermit makes a surprise visit with a flesh-eating disease present and, you know, needs some help. Mm. But the group is like, nah, and sets the scene in flames, literally. After all this, the shift and addition of the music composition present creates an eerie and intense mood, while the imagery to come, especially during the nightmare scene that basically tells us what's to come, yet leaves an ambiguous taste in our mouths since, you know, it isn't clear who it's coming from, giving the film kind of a visual identity. Now, you know, towards the third act, the theme shifts to total isolation, since, you know, Bert and Ernie are stuck in, you know, the woods with no help, especially not from the town folks. But by this point, pretty much everybody's infected, which we find out later. Flesh-eating cholera? Don't drink the water. <clears throat> all, all jokes aside for a second, guys, people in Flint, Michigan are still saying that. It's 2019. This is one of the real horrors of our time. Now, Karen is in isolation after being the first to get infected among the group and just ends up dying a slow, painful, deteriorating death. She ends up infecting Paul after he gets a little handsy and Marcy and Bert, but not Jeff. God forbid Mr. Milksop runs off. Now, we're back to the gas station scene in Act 1 where Bert goes for help infected and little boy pancake johnson comes out and gives a big bruce lee bite on bert's hand similar to paul's but this one don't taste so good now does it which goes to show that horror can be from anything whether you expect it or not similar concept to that that show you know a thousand ways to die which could also kind of relate to final destination in a sense if you look at it we hit the climax Bodies on bodies on bodies. College kids versus town hicks. The reversal of Tucker and Dale versus evil. Paul got his revenge real quick. Really screwed things up in my eyes. You know if you know. And um, of course we gotta mention Deputy Winston. Okay guys. He's just Deputy Winston. Literally minimal significance. But don't you worry. He gets his big break in the sequel. Trust me. So Paul ends up catching a ride to the hospital from a passing truck driver. Gets better, guys. The doctors say he has to be transferred. So Winston picks him up. 
and a dying Paul tries to tell him, yo, it's in the water. But Deputy Dumber over here dumps him at the edge of the creek. Oh, the irony. Wait, wait. <laughs> Are you guys ready? Jeff's back. Once realizing he is the sole survivor, screams, I made it, I made it, as three officers proceed to shoot him down. Now, I take back what I said before. That's irony. <laughs> now, to end it all off, we are back at that delightful convenience store where kids are selling contaminated lemonade. Oh. And a large truck filled with water from the creek is seen driving away leaving with a very ambivalent mood. Until the second movie that uses the whole ending of the first movie to start off. Now, just to be clear, I discussed this movie in a nutshell. The reasoning, I just wanted to hit these significant points. Okay? Now, most honorable moment goes to Paul thanking Bert's corpse for his sacrifice. <laughs> most subtle moment goes to Paul who told the shopkeeper in the first act to put a sign up next to his son after he bit him. And if you take a close look at when Bert goes back to the shop in the third act, looky there. They actually put a sign up. Don't sit next to Dennis. <laughs> that was clever, guys. Now, who would I be if I did not name a few references seen within the film? For starters, the Night of the Living Dead with the burning of the bodies... Evil Dead with the dog point of view chase scene and, you know, the beautiful addition of the blood red drop, as well as a couple more Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes and The Shining with, you know, the presence of the bunny costume guy at the hospital. Number two, Hostel. <laughs> See, during the creation and rise of the torture porn subgenre, movies like Saw and, you know, new French extremity movements were flying out of the theaters, and Eli took an advantage of that. Although he did receive a lot of backlash due to how close the release dates were. I think what makes Hostel so enjoyable for me is the concept of motive behind the madness idea that I believe Eli derived from Diodato's Cannibal Holocaust, which of course Eli remade, but we'll get to that later. Eli did, though, you know, explicitly mention that the inspiration behind Hostel was uh, the story of a place that's located in Thailand that, you know, people can go and pay money and shoot a random person in the head. So, uh, you know, Hostel brings about this fantasy-esque vibe with the main theme leaning on deception and realism, knowing things like this happen. As a society, we have become so desensitized to real horror. Shootings, war, human rights, violations, you know? But not movies, because movies are fake, right? I think this is why I believe the revival of exploitation cinema is so important even though some content, you know, are not made for everybody. And that's how it should be, since most American horror plays it safe nowadays. Which is really ironic if you watch American Horror Story. But, you know. And this is why Asian horror is winning! Okay, now, let's jump into a little bit about Hostel. Hostel is definitely a slow burner. So don't be fooled by the dim, lit, ambiguous, blood-drenched opening. Our three main characters are two Americans named Pax 
Justin and Josh, who are backpacking around Europe with an Icelandic friend they met along the way, Oli. Now, Paxton is played by none other than actor Jay Hernandez, who you may recognize from Joyride, Suicide Squad, and Bad Moms. You know, some of the movies I've seen. Now, the characters, they are your stereotypical Americans with no real significance, whose behavior in disrespect of other countries' rules constantly in their own bubble. Let's their guard down all the time, which is very problematic, especially, you know, when they let that foreign backpacker join them, who all we know about him is he has a kid back home. Now, along the way, the three stooges encounter Alexei, who lets them stay with him and persuades them to visit a hostel in Slovakia filled with beautiful women. You don't always get what you want, guys. You don't See, the only character I actually sympathize with is Josh. Since Paxton didn't think with his actual head and is the reason they're in this predicament. One by one, each group member goes missing, which includes an Asian woman named Kana, who was taken by the secret elitist club. And, you know, the club tried to frame it to make it seem like Oli and her ran away together. <sighs> Turns out the beautiful women, Natalia and Svetlana, are actually being paid to find people for this elite club. Now let's let's name some prices real quick. We got 5,000 for a rush, we got 10,000 for a European and $25,000 for an American. Even when Paxton files a missing persons report, little does he know. Yet, you know, the whole town is in on it, including our boy Alexi from earlier. Now, a little about this underground society. They are an elitist group made of wealthy individuals who have tasted most of what life had to offer and are now thrill seekers who pay big money, as mentioned before, to torture and kill random people. Now, one man who we meet earlier on a train tried to make a move on Josh. Then later at the club, Josh runs into him again and apologizes for freaking out. Still, didn't stop the man from opening him up later to fulfill his desire of always wanting to be a surgeon. We're going to call him Bill, okay? See, for me, the craziest part of it is that these people have families and normal lives outside. White, rich people are crazy. And this will not be the last time I say this. Trust me. This will not. Although this is all we get from this elite club, there is no one mastermind behind it all. This ambiguity is still left on the table for the imagination of the audience. In the end, Paxton realizes it all and infiltrates into the underground torture chamber and rescues the other Asian tourist, Yuki, who was supposed to meet him that morning to leave. Along the way, steals one of the cars of the elitist and runs over Alexi and the two women that he spotted at a local cafe. Revenge was literally sweet. Then arrives to the train station. Inevitably, inevitably, Yuki sees herself with one eye missing since she was, you know, tortured prior. I mean, so was Paxton, but not to the same extent. 
um, and abruptly jumps in front of the upcoming train. Now, to look at it from maybe a more positive look, she also did this out of sacrifice. So she could be a distraction and Paxton could flee on the train. Now, it took me a while to kind of understand why Paxton was the sole survivor. When in original war, he'd be gone already. Then I realize it's twisted fate. That Paxton leaves with despair and guilt for his actions. A void of defeat he will have to live with. But it's not over yet. Okay, so I'm just going to touch on the traditional ending. Although there's an alternative ending I would highly check out if I were you. Low-key darker in my opinion, but we're just going to stick to a traditional for this. Anyway, Paxton realizes the failed wannabe sergeant, Bill, is on the train, follows him out as he is baiting new people, corners him in the bathroom and grabs this man and throws him in the toilet face first, then bam, smashes his head once, bam, twice, bam, he is out, game over, leaves him where he belongs and walks out. That is literally the ending. No true resolution, and I love it. See, now, the only thing I have to say about the sequel is the beginning is a continuation of Paxton, who is in hiding because he's afraid the, you know, elitist group will try to find him. What is up with you, Eli Roth, and adding these sequels into the next... I just realized that as I was saying it, so, you know, it took me a minute. As we all know, no one can stay hidden forever, and we find a beheaded Paxton added to the collection, and Eli Roth, you sneaky son of a gun, I saw your head plastered in that collection. Don't think you're too subtle now. The rest of the sequel is the exact same plot, except all females and the deaths turn more shallow. While they just started adding so much unnecessary detail to the elite club that is, you know, it just ruined it, okay? How could you put your name on this as producer, Quentin Tarantino? You did a fine job when you helped Eli in the first movie, okay? And really, Rugro Diodato took a part in this crap fest after gaining your known profile, see how I said known, in Cannibal Holocaust? The only good thing, to play devil's advocate, about the sequel was when the main character, Beth, okay, chops the female version of Alexi's head off. We'll call her Alexandra. And the bubblegum gang from the first movie starts playing soccer with it. That was actually really awesome. Other than that, I don't acknowledge this film. And if I forget it strong enough, Paxton is still alive. Paxton is still alive. Paxton is still alive. Third movie makes you lose brain cells with a whole different concept and dash of cheap amateur Vegas games. I'm glad none of the people from the first two, I'm, I'm even talking about production company, even looked at the third one. Green Inferno, which is also the third movie to Eli's Travel Trilogy. And the other two I have actually already named, which I did not plan that. It just so happened to work that way. So, Quick intro, Eli Roth's Green Inferno is heavily based on Rugro Diodato's 1980 cannibal holocaust that took place in the deep Amazon known as the Green Inferno. I think you could put two and two together. Now, a little bit of background knowledge. Roth casted the Kalanayaku tribe 
from Peru to be the main stars, and they were completely cut off from civilization. And that is exactly what Eli had intended. Even though the production team had to explain to them, you know, what a movie was. Now, honestly, the funniest part about it all was that the crew showed the tribe Cannibal Holocaust and then thought it was a comedy. They really enjoyed the whole acting process while they were filming and did a fantastic job. Green Inferno is about a New York college student, Justine, whose father, you know, is a lawyer for the UN. Um, You know, then she encounters a student activist, Jonah, who, you know, has the hots for her, and leader of that group, Alejandro, who is played by Ariel Levy, when he leads a hunger strike on behalf of underpaid janitors. Amused, Justine decides to go and help Alejandro's next project to save an indigenous tribe in the Amazon from an international lumber company. The goal is to film the logging crew with cell phones and stream footage to raise awareness. They chain themselves to bulldozers while filming the loggers' destruction. When a private militia arrives, Justine is handed a faulty chain and is nearly killed until the stream goes viral, and they are forced to let them go. As you can tell, Justine was highly upset since she did not get the 411 while everybody else did. Now, Carlos, who funded the operation and a drug dealer, pays off the cops after they, you know, their arrest and then all leave back on the plane. Although tampered with, the plane crashes, killing Carlos and a few other members on board. The remaining survivors soon realize they are in the middle of an ancient jungle with the same indigenous tribe of cannibals who believe they are the enemy, since they are kind of dressed up like them. Now, they have to try to live for a few days. Just try to outlive those few days, guys, since Alejandro over here comes to reveal it was all a stunt. And another company is on the way. Truth be told, if I was going to die in this scenario, take me in that plane crash, please. During the plane scene, Eli put the cast in a drone and spun them 720 degrees in the air. He wanted as little CGI as possible. Now, of course, I gave you guys the quickest summary possible of the film, but let's talk about the highlights. First one up on the chopping block goes to Jonah. No pun intended. Played by actor Aaron Burns. Aaron. For most gruesome kill. Honestly. Not only feeding him blood before, but literally got butchered limb by limb while alive. Okay. This is kind of a nice little refresher. Sweet, sweet body horror. Now, funniest death scene has to go to Lars. Played by actor Daryl Sabara who got eaten alive by high cannibals. He literally tried to do a disappearing finger trick. They aren't stupid. So they made that illusion the real deal. I have to admit, though, this this movie did ruin my image of Daryl. I still remember him from Spy Kids, okay, as Juni Cortez. Back to, back to the real point. Now best N.O. death, hands down, goes to my girl, Amy, played by Kirby Bliss Blanton. After her girlfriend, Samantha, escapes to get help. We aren't left with any answers to what happened, which I appreciate. All we see is the tribal kids playing with her 
cut up tattoo skins. And one is present at the bottom of Amy's food bowl. From vegan to cannibal in five seconds. And that's about how long it took for Amy to go and oop, break the bowl and slit her throat. Now, our final award for the evening for best team player goes to Lorenza Izzo, who plays Justine. While shooting her scene in the open water, acting like the tides were, you know, taking her, you know, oh, acting. Nah, she actually almost drowned and was literally clinging for her life. But, you know, that's showbiz, Izzo. Before we finish off with Green Inferno, final notes. I appreciated the commentary present in the film that really highlights this millennial look lazy form of activism. You know, the tweeting hashtags, as Eli put it. This film was actually inspired by Occupied Wall Street and how the young generation aren't so much interested in the cause, but continually wants a shortcut for a solution. There is only one issue with that outlook. This overly cynical demeanor of activism. Of course, plain devil advocate once again. Especially among student-led movements. There are actually, you know, plenty of successful organizations that are truly creating change. We just have to acknowledge both sides. And Eli just mostly focused on the others since, you know, it's more present within media. Hashtag big picture. Thank you for listening, horror fanatics, and uh, um, <clears throat> hashtag show some love, or that means you hate horror. Ciao now.